Hebrews chapter 4, and we'll begin today in verse 1. I think I will wait to read the text until we get to each section and explain it as we go along. But let me refresh your memory. Last week, as we looked at the next at this next step in our journey through the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit laid before us a sobering warning. Namely, that many who profess Jesus Christ will miss eternal life. For though they live among God's people, their hearts are dead toward God. The author feared that the reason some members of this little congregation were being enticed to turn away from the faith that they had previously professed and even suffered for was because deep in, inside their hearts were dead toward God. They had all the externals together. They assembled with the church every Lord's Day. They engaged in various forms of ministry with the saints. They talked like believers. They dressed like good church members. They sang the songs. They even memorized the scriptures. No doubt they could even hold some official position in the church. They were deacons and elders and teachers and other ministers. They could even explain many of the biblical doctrines that they said they believe. But deep down inside, however, in the place that really matters, in the place that only God can see, they were lost in the church and lost. They were too embarrassed to admit that their faith was a sham. And so they stayed hardened. And every time they heard the word of God and the Holy Spirit chipping on them to cause them to repent and allow the eternal surgeon to remove their heart of stone and to give them a heart of flesh if they would only humble themselves and repent. But they were too embarrassed, too proud. And so rather than a softening transplant, they became harder. They were too embarrassed. They were too proud. But despite their best efforts to conceal the truth, this trial they were facing was bringing it all to light. These were men and women who lived intellectually convinced that the gospel is true, but they had never really humbled themselves before the cross and repented of their sins. They didn't need to recommit to Christ. That's not even a biblical concept. They needed to be saved. They needed to be born again. To illustrate the sobering reality of this message, the author pointed them back to the first generation of Israelites who had left Egypt with Moses. They had witnessed the greatest miracles ever performed in the history of the world. They were the ones who had crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They saw the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke, the manifest presence of God, also called the Shekinah glory of God. They saw it with their own eyes as it led them through the wilderness. They received water from a rock and manna from heaven. God had spoken directly to them from the peak of Mount Sinai. These were the ones who received God's law and God's tabernacle. More than all of that, God had promised to bring them to a land flowing with milk and honey, a place where they would have vineyards that they didn't plant, a place where they would find houses for them that they did not build. Nevertheless, of the 600,000 men who left with Moses, only two entered the promised land. Why? Why? Well, only two entered the promised land because the rest of that generation, religious though they were, refused to humble themselves before God and received by faith the gift of his promised rest. Well, that's a sobering word for the church in our day, beloved. That's a sobering word. If it happened to them, it can happen to us. And it happens to us all the time. Not just us, Calvary Bible Church, but I mean the Western church in general. It's a sobering reality. It's a call for us, all of us, regardless of our station in life or position in the church, to examine our hearts to see if we really have been transformed by the miracle of saving grace. 
Through the prophet Ezekiel, God promised that one day he would come and perform a spiritual heart transplant on the people. He said these words twice in Ezekiel. He said, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances to do them. Then they will be my people. And I will be their God. What is a heart of stone? Let me tell you, it is a dead heart. It is a dead, lifeless, faithless, unchanged, unredeemed, unregenerated heart in religious people. And God was saying, one day, referring to when Christ would come and the Holy Spirit would be released to perform the miracle of grace in all who would believe, one day I will come through that person of the Holy Spirit and I will remove your dead heart and I will give you a living heart so that you will desire to obey me. Then you will be my people and then I will be your God. Last week, we were warned that spiritual privilege is not the same thing as spiritual life. Spiritual privilege is not the same thing as spiritual life. What does that mean? It means it doesn't matter what experiences you say that you have with God. It doesn't matter how many times you've been to the campfire or been on the retreat It doesn't matter how many Bible studies you've been or been through or how many times you have felt the Spirit move in your heart. That's never the question. Those are not biblical questions. The question is, has God done a miracle in your heart and given you a heart that desires to please Him so that when you are not pleasing Him, you're miserable. And when you are pleasing Him, even in the midst of persecution, you know joy. You sing with joy. The fact that we have had tremendous spiritual experiences does not necessarily mean that we have true spiritual life. These people had an experience, right? I mean, they were with Moses. They walked across the Red Sea. They saw all of those things that I just described. And yet their hearts were dead and never changed. We need to examine ourselves to see if we are really of the faith, as Paul says, Or as Peter wrote, you need to make all the more certain about his calling and choosing you. In other words, you need to take seriously whether or not God has done the miracle of grace in your heart. Because it could very well be that you come to church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. You may be a deacon here. You may be an elder in this church and be lost. Because you're playing fast and loose with sin. Because you have a cavalier attitude to righteousness. You think because you're here and you're privileged and you've been elevated in some way, shape, or form that you are a child of God. And that's not true. And so this morning, I ask, since we were together last week, have you examined your hearts? Has the Holy Spirit convicted you that you perhaps are not genuinely a child of God? Are you still undecided about what to do? Are you sitting on the fence wondering, trying to make a decision whether I will sell out completely to the Lord Jesus Christ or whether I will sell out completely away from Christ, whether I will embrace the cross or become apostate? Are you sitting on the fence? Are you wondering which way to go? Are you ready to make that final decision, but you're not sure which way it's going to be? If so, the Spirit of God has another message for you. In fact, here in chapter 4, he gives four parts to that message. Found in the first 13 verses of this chapter. First of all, If you are struggling with whether to embrace Christ fully or turn your back on him forever, the author says, number one, be afraid of missing God's rest. If you're taking notes, this is point number one. Be afraid 
of missing God's rest. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, let us fear. While a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to come short of it. Now, when was the last time you heard a message entitled, and this one's not entitled this, but it could be, be afraid. Be very afraid. Listen, beloved, if your brand of Christianity is all about warm fuzzies and good vibrations, then your spirit may be a little shocked by this verse. Because we love it when the Bible tells us to love Jesus and believe in God and pray and love one another and do good and be blessed. But what do we make of the first four words of this verse? Therefore, let us fear. In case you're wondering if somehow the translators got it wrong, the word for fear here is fabeo, which is the word from which we get our English word phobia. It means be afraid, be scared, be terrified. The word is not a suggestion. It's not presented as something we might do when someday we feel like it. No, it is a command. If you are undecided about whether or not you're going to entrust your whole life and your soul to the Lord Jesus Christ, then the author is saying to you, be afraid. Be very afraid. And why does he tell us to be afraid? I think there may be two reasons. First of all, because few sinners feel fear toward God. Few sinners who have yet to submit to the gospel, or as Peter says, who have yet to obey the gospel, feel the fear of the Lord. In Romans 3, one of the marks of the unbeliever is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear God. And so the author of Hebrews says, you better fear Him. You better fear Him. Because someday you're going to meet Him. And then you'll be very afraid. Secondly, many church members are desensitized to the fear of God. We live in an age, and many of you know this far better than I do, I don't, I don't get to go visit other churches, right? <laughs> this is it, I'm here every week. I didn't come from somewhere else, really. I've been here for 13 years, over 13 years now. We praise God that we're here, but we know what's out there because you've told us, and we've read about it. There's so much foolishness, there's so much silliness, there's so much meaningless repetition, There's so much feel-good, quiver-in-your-liver Christianity. In many churches, many Christians are totally desensitized to the fear of God. It's all about grace. It's all about mercy. It's all about God's love. But they know nothing of the fear of the Lord. Listen, the beginning of wisdom is where? The fear of the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is where? The fear of the Lord. You sound unconvinced, beloved. Where is the beginning of wisdom and all knowledge of God? It is the fear of the Lord. And so whether you are visiting skeptic this morning, or whether you're a longtime church member, deacon, elder, Sunday school teacher with a dead heart, the author's prescription for you begins with a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord. One day you will stand before him. And you will look back and grieve with great tears that will move his heart not one whit because you came and you heard again and again and again the truth of the living God and yet you were too proud, too afraid that people would look down on you and not concerned at all that God might be looking down on you. And what is it that we should be afraid that God might do? Read the remainder of this verse. We're still in verse 1. If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to fall short of it. 
It's almost as if he's being hesitant here to even admit that it's possible that some of you would miss it. Can it be possible that some beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, at least they profess to be that, who are with us day after day, week after week, they go on campouts with us, they pray with us, they come to church, and yet secretly in their hearts they're dead toward God. Could it be? Is it possible? Rest, by the way, here is the dominant theme of this chapter. Last night I was flipping through and I counted no less than 12 references in 13 verses. The word rest or some other word pointing to it. The writer is using it to speak of the eternal salvation the true children of God will inherit when the Lord returns or when we die. When we leave this life on earth, we enter our rest. He was saying, do not think that in the end God is just going to let everybody into the kingdom. Jesus said that the gate that leads to eternal life is narrow and small and few find it. But broad and straight is the road that leads to direction, to destruction. And many find that. Many find the road to destruction. And so it is an established fact that in the end, most people are going to miss out on God's eternal rest. So be afraid. Another way you could say this is, wake up. Wake up to your need. You know what the Great Awakening was all about? The Spirit so moved in New England that people began to wake up to their need. I need to be saved. I need my sins forgiven. I need to repent. I need to humble myself before God. That's what the author is seeking to do in this church Be afraid. Wake up. You're very close to missing eternal life. Don't let that happen to you. To be sure, this is a sobering warning. If you were coming this morning not expecting hellfire, (laughs) that's okay. We're just going through the text. And I trust we're just letting God speak. When it comes to to the bad news, we're replete in this first verse and in the previous text altogether. Very sobering warning. But with it comes wonderful news. With this comes glorious good news. Namely, that it's not too late. It's not too late. God's promise is still being offered. As long as you can hear the call of God, there is still time to repent. You don't have to miss it. And beloved, this is so important, especially when you're ministering to someone who's blown it so bad, they think there can be no hope for me. There just can't be any hope for me. You need to tell them, do you think your sin is bigger than God? Do you think, really, the sin you have committed is greater than the God who created the universe? There is no pit so deep, Corey Tin Boone said, that God is not deeper still. God is greater than your sin. He's greater than your sin. You can be forgiven. And so the author says, therefore, let us fear While a promise remains of entering the rest. What's the good news? The promise still remains. It's still there. It's still being offered. You haven't missed it. The train's about to leave. But you still have time to get on. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. And so the first part of the author's message here in chapter 4 is be afraid of missing God's rest. Second, Be mindful how Israel missed God's rest. Be mindful how Israel missed God's rest. Look at verse 2. For indeed we have had good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. 
For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. And what's he talking about? And why did that entire generation of Israel miss out on the promised land after seeing all the amazing miracles of God with their own eyes, without enjoying the provision that God made for them day after day after day after day after day? And to put some perspective on that, I'm 43 years old. They saw God's provision literally for my entire lifetime. Let's say my parents were Jews who left with Moses. I would have been three if today is the day that I'm walking into the promised land. I would have been three years old when that happened. He's saying, for your entire lifetime almost, you saw God's provision for 40 years. How many of you are under 40 years old here this morning? Raise your hand. Look at that. For more than your lifetime, they saw day after day after day after day, not just subtleties, but blatant miracles of God that they could not deny. And yet they would not repent. It was because seeing did not result in believing. The reason that they died in the desert is because seeing did not result in believing. That generation had good news preached to them. That's what he says, right? For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also. They had good news preached to them. They had gospel preached to them. It was preached when Moses came to Egypt and proclaimed that God had heard their cry and had determined to deliver them. Trust God. Put your faith in God and he will deliver you. It was preached again when they came to Sinai and God promised to be their God and make them his special people. Put your trust in God. He will deliver you. He will sustain you. And he will lead you into his eternal rest. And it was preached when the spies returned to camp at Kadesh Barnea and Joshua and Caleb said, God has given us this land if we will only trust God and take it. The good news was preached to them. The reason they missed out on the promised land was not because the good news had not been preached. Rather, he says, the word they heard did not profit them because, listen, it was not united by faith in those who heard. It was not united with faith. In the text, it literally could say it was not mixed up or combined with faith. In the people who heard, simply stated, they never let the message change the object of their faith. They never let the message change the object of their faith. When they lived in Egypt, they trusted themselves. When they crossed the Red Sea, they trusted themselves. When they arrived at Sinai, they trusted themselves. Enter golden calf, right? And when God came and brought them all the way across the desert to the promised land and they were standing on its very border at Kadesh Barnea sending the spies in to bring back a report of how wonderful the land was and what might be the best place to enter, did they trust in God? They trusted in themselves. The problem, of course, was trusting yourself And the problem with trusting yourself is that the object of your trust is smaller than the problems you confront. If your trust is rooted in yourself, if you believe in yourself, what happens when the problem that you face is bigger than you? You're in serious trouble. And every time Israel hit a problem that was bigger than self, they sinned because they trusted in themselves. And so when they came to the promised land and the spies came back with their message, what did they do? They didn't take the land because 
They were smaller than the giants. They said, we are grasshoppers in their eyes. And in our eyes, we are grasshoppers as well. We'll never be able to conquer these people. This problem is bigger than we are. They missed God's promised rest, not because they had a deficient promise or a deficient God, but because they had a deficient faith. The object of their faith was deficient because they trusted in themselves. Preaching did not profit them. They heard God's word, but they did not mix or blend the message with faith in God. And that's why only two of 600,000 men in that generation entered the promised land. Only two were willing to say, yep, big problem, far bigger than me, Lord, take it from here. Do what you've promised. We don't see how in the world we're going to win this victory, but then we didn't see how in the world we were ever going to get beyond the Red Sea. And we didn't see how in the world we were ever going to get anything to drink out in that desert. And we didn't say We didn't see any way in the world we were going to have food out there or meat. And yet you have provided out of heaven. We trust you. What's your response when you face a problem that's bigger than yourself? What you are in the day of trial is what you are and nothing more. Because in the day of trial, you learn who you're trusting in. You learn what the object of your faith is. You see, beloved, being a Christian is not just a matter of listening to the preaching of God's word. It's a matter of trusting God's word. You see the difference? It's not just a matter of listening to God's word. It's obeying God's word that matters. It's not good enough simply to know what God says. We must obey what God says. And that's what believing is all about. If your belief is only intellectual then you are not trusting God. Or let me make it even more pointed, okay? Your toe's been stepped on yet? You know I love you. I'm about ready to step on my own as well. Here we go. If there's an area of your life where you know that God would have you do something you're unwilling to do or stop doing you're unwilling to quit, then you are not trusting God. You say, well, I have faith in God. No, you don't. No, you don't. At that point, your faith is failing. At that point, you are mocking God's word. At that point, you're saying, Father, you are untrustworthy. I'm too scared. This problem is too big for me, and I'm not willing to trust you. Be afraid. Be afraid. That's what the Christian life is all about. We don't have to go very far to see that. Just read Jesus. Just read about his story in Matthew chapter 7 about the two houses, the two men, the two storms, right? What's the difference between the two men? They both build houses. They both faced the storm. One man's house was demolished and the other one stood fast. What was the difference between the two? One heard and believed and obeyed. One heard and obeyed and the other one heard and didn't obey. One heard Jesus' words and did not do what he commanded. The other one heard Jesus' words and did what he commanded. That's the difference between belief and trust. Saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will move you to action. Saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ means in your life, your desire and your ambition is to be found pleasing to the Lord in everything. So that if something comes to the surface by his grace, through his spirit, according to his word, that you're just missing, that you're just being disobedient, then you get on that and you say, Father, forgive me and help me. This problem is too big for me. And if you're sitting in church hearing the preaching of the word like these Israelites did week after week after week after week after week and you're not doing that kind of calculating in your heart, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Be afraid. 
We must obey what God says. That's what believing is all about. And the only way to enter God's rest is by faith, by entrusting all that we are to all that he has promised. Belief is not just a mental or academic exercise. It's an attitude of trusting God wholeheartedly. One author writes, Belief with nothing else will save us. Unbelief with everything else will condemn us. Verse 3 says, We who have believed enter that rest. The tense of the verb here indicates that we who are living by faith in God's promises are already entering that rest. We're already experiencing a taste of what it will be like when we enter His heavenly kingdom. We are experiencing what Jesus was referring to when He said, Come to Me, all of you who are weary and are burdened with a heavy load, and I will give you what, class? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. We are already experiencing that if we are living by faith in his promises. The language of the next couple of verses is difficult for the non-Jewish reader to grasp intuitively, but let me see if I can summarize it. What he's saying is that the rest God enjoyed on the seventh day of creation was a foreshadowing of the rest that he would offer us for eternity. Look at verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. In other words, He's talking about a rest that's different than the rest that he had on the seventh day. For he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And then again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest, looking to the future. So whatever this rest is, it is not the same thing as the rest that he experienced on the seventh day after he created all things. Basically, what he's saying is that the rest God enjoyed on the seventh day of creation was a foreshadowing of the rest that he would offer his people for eternity. And it is a rest. It's the kind of rest that Adam and Eve enjoyed before sin. And Jesus Christ came to restore the rest that man had lost after sin. For all who would trust in him, they would enter the promise of rest And some would enter that rest and others would not, but the promise was still available. That's his message. It's still available. And the only way to miss it is to harden your heart against God and unbelief and keep trusting in yourself. Just do that. Just buy the wisdom of the world. Just believe in yourself. Just increase your self-esteem. Just get after it with all of your might so people love you and people lift you up. And even if they don't, that's okay. You're your own hero in your own eyes. You're a legend in your own mind. And the world says, then you'll be happy. They'll say, you know why that guy went on the university campus and shot everybody? It's because he had a low self-esteem. No, he didn't. He didn't fear God. He loved himself and he hated everybody else. He did not fear God. And so to the person wavering between commitment and unbelief, the author says that you should fear missing God's rest. And secondly, be mindful how Israel missed God's rest because it could happen to you. The same kind of unbelief can creep into your heart or maybe is manifesting itself all the way along in your heart so that you are exposed as one whose heart is dead toward God. But thirdly, be prompt in receiving God's rest. Don't continue down this path. Be prompt. Receive it. Receive it now. Look at verse 6. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter it because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, 
After so long a time, just as has been said before, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So here we go. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest. You haven't missed it. It is still to come. We've already seen that rest is primarily a word. It's the primary word in the text. Over and over and over again, he's speaking of the rest. But there's another significant word. Verse 6, remains. Remains. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, It's used also in verse 1 and will be used again in verse 9. Is it possible to miss the obvious meaning here? Hope is still alive. It's not too late. You can still enter God's rest, but you must act quickly. You must be prompt. You must get after it. Someone will say, well, how long do I have have before I need to make my decision? What's the closing date? What's the deadline? The author says, verse 7, Today is your deadline. Today is the closing date. There is no time. You have no promise of anything beyond right now. He says, God fixes a day. In other words, he marks out the boundaries of opportunity, calling it today. It's the same thing that the Apostle Paul referred to, quoting out of the Old Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Paul declares, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Implication, so what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? You waiting for lightning to strike? You waiting to see a cloud in heaven that's got your name on it? You waiting to open a bag of tortillas and see the face of Jesus? You waiting to drive under an overpass and see moss on the concrete and see Mary? What are you waiting for? He has spoken to you. He's spoken to you. He's spoken to you. And you keep hearing it, but but you're not hearing it. It's like Jesus. I think we talked about this a week or two ago. He told the story of the rich man and Lazarus. They both died. And the rich man cries out from Hades, from the place of torment. And he says, Father Abraham, please send just a drop of water to quench my tongue from this flame. And he said, no, I can't do that. You're too far away, the gulf between us, and no man's allowed to pass. And he said, well, then please at least send someone back to my brothers. In other words, send someone back from the dead to my brothers so that they will not face this torment. And Abraham said, no, they have Moses and the prophets. If they are unwilling to listen to the word of God, they will not believe though God raised someone from the dead. A miracle will not produce faith. A humble heart will believe everything God says without a miracle. The reason the author mentions David here is because the passage he keeps quoting from is Psalm 95. It's a great psalm. We don't have time to read it this morning, but I encourage you to do it later. It's pretty short. Last week, Brent read it for us during the scripture reading time at the beginning of the service. It begins with this beautiful words of worship. And then it jumps into this text that the author keeps quoting. Today, if you hear, do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah. He's speaking of David's writing. And so the Holy Spirit must be referring to some place other than the land that Joshua led the people to. Why? Because David, when he was writing that psalm, was in the land of promise. He was in the promised land. For goodness sakes, he was king of the promised land. He was there. And he's still talking about this coming rest. And so it must be future It can't be what Moses led them to and Joshua led them into. We know that because of verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. 
That's not the promised rest. That was just a foreshadowing of God's ultimate rest. And so the conclusion, simply this, verse 9, there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And what's the nature of that rest? Let me give you several things. What's the nature of that rest? Number one, God's rest is spiritual. God's rest is spiritual. It didn't come through Yeshua. It came through Yeshua. Isn't that interesting? It didn't come through Joshua. It came through Jesus. Same word. It doesn't come through Joshua. It comes through Jesus Christ. It's spiritual. But number two, God's rest is not only spiritual. God's rest is future. Revelation 14, 13 says, John writing, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Jesus, I mean, yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors. It's appropriate when a believer dies to say they entered their rest. They entered into the rest that God has promised them. That's not just tradition. That's the authority of God's word. They have entered into their rest. And so whatever this rest is, we know it's spiritual. We know it's also future. But thirdly, God's rest is present. And we already read Matthew eleven twenty-eight and 29 where Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And Proverbs 13, 15 says that the way of the transgressor is hard. It's hard. But those who come to the Lord Jesus find rest. Even in this life, you find rest. And so the rest is spiritual, it's future, it's present. Number four, God's rest saves It's a saving rest. It saves us from the demands of the law and the unbearable burden of works righteousness, which serves only to condemn us. Look at verse 10. He says, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. When you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not come on your own merit. You do not come based on the structure that you have built. You do not come in the vehicle that you made for yourself. You come naked and bare, offering nothing but your sin. You have no works by which you merit yourself before God. You are saved from the curse of having to try to measure up to God's standard which you can never, ever, ever achieve. It's futile. And that's why in the Roman Catholic system, the end of all who believe is purgatory for an indefinite period of time. Why? Because you can never, ever, ever do enough to achieve. But you must try. You must try with all of your might. You must keep trying so that in the day you enter purgatory, you will enter for a shorter period of time than you would have otherwise if you didn't try. The author is saying, you're released from all of that. You're released from all of that. Number five, God's rest is his own rest. He calls it my rest. They shall not enter my rest. In other words, we are invited to enter into the very rest that God himself enjoys. We enter into the rest of God's presence. And lastly, it is a working rest. In this life, we become co-laborers with Christ. In the life to come, there will be all kinds of active employment for us to engage in for the glory of God and without the burden of temptation or sin. We will be co-laborers. We will work with him now, and we will work with him forever. It is a working rest. Even Jesus says to the Pharisees, The Father works even till now, speaking of the Sabbath, and I also work. It is a working rest. It is resting even while you are being productive for the kingdom of God. That's the rest that he's talking about. It's a spiritual, future, present, saving rest that is God's own rest and by which and in which we work with him. This is the rest that we're offered. If you are alive and you have not, then you have not missed it yet. But you must not delay. The day that God has fixed for you to receive it is today. And so he says, today if you hear his voice, do not 
harden your hearts. The rest is there if you want it, beloved. We must fear missing God's rest. We must be mindful of how Israel lost God's rest. We must be prompt in receiving God's rest. And one last thing, we must be diligent to enter God's rest. The last few verses, verse 11. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the spirits of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So, beloved, if you're waiting for God to zap you, with a salvation lightning bolt, if you're waiting for God to run over you with the gospel bus, if you're waiting for him to do something and you're just sitting there doing nothing, you're in real danger of missing God's rest. It's time for you to do something about your salvation. You cannot earn it. You cannot merit it. But you must employ the means of grace. You say, wait a minute, I thought you were a Calvinist. I am. I thought you believe in God's sovereignty over man's salvation. You're right. God is sovereign, and he is sovereignly ordained that men and women come to salvation through the application of biblical means of grace. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how are they here without a preacher, Romans asks. Paul says there must be means. We must be active in taking the gospel, and they must be active to receive it. And coming into God's rest is not a passive experience. You must be diligent. Salvation is by grace alone, but God has ordained certain means of grace by which the hard, disobedient, and dead heart can be transplanted with a brand new, soft, and living heart that delights to please God. I meet people frequently as I counsel People will come to me and I'll say, do you believe Jesus died on the cross? We'll go through the gospel. Yep, I believe all that. But their lives are a mess. Well, why hasn't it had any effect on your life? I don't know. It just hasn't. They'll communicate the gospel as clear as you've ever heard it. They'll even defend it among their pagan friends. It's hysterical and sad. They know it, but it hasn't made any effect on their life. Why not? Because they're not obeying it. They're not responding to the call. They're not employing any of the means of grace. And so what do you say? You say, listen, here's what you're to do. I'm going to give you homework, okay? This can't merit your salvation, but you're not going to get it any other way. You need to do what believers do. You need to get into the Word, and you need to read God's message over and over and over again. It's God's means of saving grace. And you need to pray. You know what you need to pray? God, save me. God, forgive me. God, save me. God, forgive me. And you want to throw in God, help me, you can do that too. But God, save me. God, forgive me. And you know what? You begin applying the means of grace. I think the Holy Spirit will use that. There isn't any other way to come to Him. There must be Word of God. There must be some prayerful response to that offer of grace. And if you just sit around waiting for it all to happen, it'll never happen. How do we get that? How do, we, how do they get that in place you know, or get to the place where a person is um, turning from self and placing their absolute trust in Christ? Well, ultimately God has to perform a miracle in the heart that's true. But he always does that as a result of applying the means of grace. If you're waiting for God to save you, but you're not reading the Word, you're waiting for God to save you, but you're not listening to the Word preached, you're waiting for God to save you, but you're not asking Him to save you, He's not going to save you. There isn't going to be any spiritual heart transplant. There isn't going to be anything happening in you spiritually because you don't want it. If you wanted it, you'd be getting after it. If you wanted it, you'd be pleading, God, save me, help me, do something. 
What does it mean to be diligent to enter the rest? It means that you intentionally apply your heart and your mind to reading God's word, confessing known sin, repenting of your self-sufficiency and self-esteem, listening to the preaching of the gospel, praying that God will be merciful to you, the sinner, and he will save. Do you sense urgency about the author's writing here? Israel missed her rest because of disobedience to God's word, and someday God will judge us according to the very word we chose to disregard. We've all memorized this verse, right? That of the contender verses, this was the first verse we memorized. But did you ever think about the context? You ever think about the context of this? Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We all memorize that verse. But guess what? God isn't giving that to us to encourage our spirits. He's doing it to condemn us. He's saying someday we will be judged. The word is kritikos, from which we get critic or critique. It's to judge. He will judge us by God's word. Let us not be so foolish as to think that we can hide anything from God. Someday the sham, the hypocrisy of our hearts will be revealed, and no profession of faith, no matter how orthodox, and no list of good works, no matter how sacrificial, will count for anything before his eyes. And the only thing that will count is the thoughts and intentions of our hearts which his word will fully expose and then judge. Verse 14 then puts the exclamation point on the whole thing when he says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. With whom we have to do It means with whom we have to deal or with whom our final reckoning has been made. Someday we will all stand before God and give an account for how we we responded to his offer of eternal rest in Jesus Christ. Are you ready for that final day of reckoning? It's coming. Beloved, if God has revealed to you that your faith is a farce or that your faith is on the fence, teetering between commitment and apostasy, consider what you have heard. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Be afraid of missing God's rest. Be mindful how Israel missed God's rest. Be prompt in receiving God's rest. Be diligent to enter God's rest. The wonderful news of the gospel is this. No matter who you are, or what you've done, it's not too late to enter God's saving rest. His promise still remains so that today, if you hear His voice, today, if you hear His voice, and you choose to not harden your hearts again, you will be saved. That's our promise. That's our hope. It's our warning. May the Lord help us, enable us to respond faithfully to it. Let's pray.